This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I hope you're all staying safe and practicing social distancing as we all cope with the realities of this pandemic. In the meantime, I have another great interview for you with Mike Maharg, better known as Science Mike. I talked with him way back in 2016, and it was great to catch up with him and discuss his new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, embracing the emotions, habits, and mystery that make you you. We talk about the pandemic and Trump's response to it prior to diving into his book, where we discuss emotion, personal growth, trauma, therapy and healing, and much more. Mike's book is available on April 28th and is available for pre-order now wherever books are sold. It's a great conversation, so let's get right to it. As always, you can support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at exvangelicalpod. I've also recently launched a new newsletter called The Post-Evangelical Post, which you can su- subscribe to over at postevangelicalpost.com. If you do enjoy the show, please rate and review it over on Apple Podcasts because that helps people find the show. This episode was produced and edited by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Mike Maharg, best known as Science Mike from the Ask Science Mike podcast. He is also the author of the new book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, Embracing the Emotions, Habits, and Mystery that Make You, You. Science Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Blake. It's good to talk with you again. Likewise. So we actually talked for the first time uh, on this show on the day of the 2016 election. Oh, my God. And I, <laughs> it was early in the day, um, and I, I honestly can't imagine the world changing any more than it already has. Back then, you were promoting your first book. How have things changed for you since that time? I mean, it's been such a tumultuous four years. Oh, my gosh, that's right. That election <laughs> happened during the release cycle of my book. <laughs> yeah. We, yep. we, I have got to stop releasing books. <laughs> Finding God in the Ways gave us Trump, and your miracle in the pain in the ass gave us COVID nineteen. Oh my gosh, this is my second book launched in a disaster. Holy cow! I guess I just tip my hand there, calling the twenty sixteen election a disaster. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, it's pretty much unmitigated. <laughs> it's been a continuous disaster since then. You know, I mean, I will yeah. say, like, it has been like educating as i was like well it can't get any worse than this mm-hmm. and then just like every year of the american trump dystopia has gotten yep. worse and for yep. everybody um so <laughs> now it's like this is the ex- i'm just i'm i guess i'm just in this mood this is the exact moment you want like 
a fraudulent real estate developer from Manhattan <laughs> running the federal government. Like the guy has never done anything in his life but lie mm -hmm. to make deals happen, to rely on the work of others, and then skim some profit from it. And now he's in charge of our response at the moment you most desperately need professional competency. And yep. he spent three years getting rid of anyone in the government who has competency. And now tens of thousands mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of Americans are going to die. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even today, we're recording on uh, early in early April, and he dismissed the inspector general in charge of the $2 trillion bailout. Because he today. wants to pocket so. as much of it as possible. <laughs> like at this yep. time when everyone's dying, all he's concerned mm -hmm. about is feeding red base to his American fascist base. I'm just saying it. And pocketing money. That's all he cares about. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's some discouraging doesn't even come close. But <laughs> no, it does. But it's but yeah, you're absolutely right. He's he's uh hollowed out the federal government to a degree that the the grown ups have left the room um when we really need them in that room. <laughs> so so yeah, we're we're starting this one uh, on a on a happy note, <laughs> on a bright note. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, just so, the world we live in, right? right. Like that's uh... right. We have to we have to absolutely reckon with with the realities of us living in a pandemic and doing things like trying to continue work and raise kids and launch books and have shows and you know it's it's touching every single part of our lives and it's mm -hmm. it's inescapable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, so we're absolutely gonna gonna talk about it here a little bit now at the top, and then probably throughout our conversation. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So, um, returning back to your book, I mean, I, I it's really hard to segue away from this thing that <laughs> that is yeah. such a defining moment and just world historical in such a way. We we will return to the things we're learning about ourselves and about. Uh, our country and everything else. Um, but in the interest of, of talking about your book, which you're promoting and which I've had the wonderful opportunity to read, I want to say that I know that this isn't like, this is certainly an uh, oversimplification, but it seemed like you're uh, having read both of your books. It seemed like your first one was like this exploration of your, your mental life uh, and your spiritual life. And then this book incorporates both like your mind and your body. And it's a, in a way a story of integration in that sense. And it seems to be this theme that that comes back to time and again in different parts of the book. Was this something that you were cognizant of uh, from the beginning, or um, was it something that you just sort of revealed through the writing process? Oh, I was not cognizant in the beginning at all. Um, you know, Finding on the Waves, I love that book. I was, I think there are a few books as honest and sincere that have ever been written as my first book. And what's a great thing about that book is I didn't know how much more there was of me. I didn't know how much of my life experience I was unaware of, how much I kept locked away and hidden from myself. Hmm. And so the big arc, basically, Finding on the Waves set off this period of my life where... 
I really thought I had a lot of answers. And not only that I had a lot of answers, I had learned what questions I couldn't answer. Mm. And so I like kind of felt like I know some things and I can't know other things. But I, you know, a- after that book came out, I kind of went full time as an author and a podcaster and a speaker. And every morning I woke up and I did work that was meaningful to me and that made an impact on other people. I was a good student of other voices who would speak from the margins and and kind of light the way and and tell me ways in which my life impacted theirs in ways that were painful and unfortunate that I was ignorant of. And uh, I would try to be responsive to those things and really listen and learn and pay attention. And so I had this idea. I was like, well, I live a life of great meaning and purpose. I've been going through therapy. I've been doing the hard work of growth and development. And I'm living a life of my dreams. I should write an instruction manual for other people to live a life as good as mine and to figure out like what good to them means. Because, for example, I uh, made a whole lot less money as an author podcaster than I did as an advertising professional. But gosh, I was happier. I figured out that meaning meant more to me than money. Mm. And so I set out to write this book, basically where I was in the subtext saying, live like I live. <laughs> it's a really kind of um, conceited perspective. But I continued to listen to wise people in my life. I continued to try to submit to marginalized voices in friendship and in scholarship. Mm-hmm. And then my life started to come unglued. Um, All of the transformation I'd made physically started to regress. I started to gain weight again. And there's, I'm a healthy at any size person, but I mean, I began to gain weight as a means of managing stress in a way that really hurt my health. Mm -hmm. And I hope that is a distinction that isn't lost on the audience. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a compulsive eater like myself. I, I understand that as a coping mechanism. And I think right. that's what, that's what you're speaking to, right? Is so that I'd be like, yeah, I'm happy. I just ate two pizzas. <laughs> of course I feel, I'm a very happy person. So, uh, you know, and I, I, um, started having panic attacks. I started having severe panic attacks that were quality of life threatening. I, um, started to have, uh, lots of feelings of anxiety, which were new to me. I've never been a person who experienced much anxiety. Um, and uh, because I was having so many mental health challenges and then seeking treatment for those challenges, I learned that I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I learned that I have autism spectrum disorder. My uh, oldest daughter was diagnosed with anorexia. And so I'm undergoing mental health treatments, and then my daughter's undergoing mental health treatments, and my wife and my other daughter have to start family systems therapy to try to help us support each other through all these challenges. And it's just money, 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 money. And uh, so it just eats away all the, the... I've always been a careful, diligent person, spend little, save a lot. And all our life savings went away. Yeah, so I'm in trauma therapy. Everybody's got mental health costs in my house. So we're spending thousands of dollars a month on mental health support. Mm-hmm. All of it, which I'm told by professionals and my friends who are wise are like critically necessary. And, um, and then about the time we ran out of money, I had chest pains in the middle of the night and went to the hospital and, um, realized that the way I was living was not just, uh, 
having emotional costs, but severe physical costs was giving me heart disease. That was life-threatening. Mm-hmm. And then Rachel Held Evans died. Mm-hmm. And all this while I'm trying to write a book about how to live a good life. And then my computer crashed, and I lost the manuscript. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and so the book had to pivot because my life pivoted. Mm-hmm. And I was writing in real time about the things I was learning about the rest of the human experience I'd never known before. And it became a book about learning to love and accept all of the difficult and unfortunate parts of yourself and to understand why it is that so often what we think and what we feel and what we do is at odds with what we want to think and do and feel. Mm. And uh, what, if anything, we can do about that dichotomy. And that's how this book came to be. It's, it's really a book written as my life fell apart and I learned basically that my body was not a suitcase for my brain, but a full and equal part of me. Yeah. I mean, that's a very hard turn of, and very difficult year that you just described. And you did something great with it. Um, I'm glad that you were able to use the experiences that that you underwent um, in this fashion to try to help other people. Uh, that's mm. extremely, extremely uh, powerful. Uh, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Um, one of the places that that comes up in the in the book, and one of the th- sorts of themes that comes up is is sort of addressing a sense of shame that some people have when they approach things like personal growth and and all of, all of those things. You you say in your book that we're we've trained people to view their behaviors as personal moral failures, but that view isn't limited. It's often flat out isn't just limited. It's often flat out wrong. Could you elaborate on that and? And what you what you've learned and what you shared in the book and other places in your in your life, yeah, I mean that that's a that's a major thrust of the entire book is we so over associate our identity with our thoughts and our agency, mm-hmm. and the parts of our body that make thoughts and agency would fit in a shot glass. <laughs> it's just a tiny amount of our overall anatomy. And then we think, that's me. And that's ridiculous. And so uh, what I explore in the book, and kind of, I guess, the thesis, if there is one, is that what we feel and what we think and what we do is this incredibly complicated interaction between stimulus and signals in our environment being filtered through layers and layers and layers and layers of biological hardware that evolution shaped over time and cobbled together, and that makes us us. And so these things in our environment are speaking to things in our brains and our bodies that our conscious experience has no knowledge or awareness of in a very limited capacity to influence or shape. And so when we look at how we respond. You and I are compulsive eaters, and we could feel a sense of shame about the way we eat. And to do that is to ignore the fact that our willpower and our agency just plays a tiny, tiny, almost insignificant role in our eating. And that although, and this, by the way, doesn't mean we're doomed to be trapped as compulsive eaters, 
there are ways to effectively treat and mitigate some of the stimulus that creates compulsive eating patterns. But we can't imagine that this is some matter of whether we are strong enough or good enough or moral enough or righteous enough. Those things will just make you depressed and anxious and afraid (laughs) and defeated. Instead, we have to understand that a host of factors in our bodies and in our environments have to come together to basically change the incentives toward the behavior and that the behavior exists because we are animals trying to survive. So compulsive eating is a great example for me to use because it's like my go-to compulsion. Compulsive eaters exist as a way of managing anxiety and feelings. Mm -hmm. And so we can't actually address compulsive eating unless we address, number one, the emotional factors underneath and come up with strategies and tool sets for being able to more um, or to be able to relate to our feelings and our lived experiences in a more adaptive way. And number two, to understand, we'll probably, as we do that, also have to curate and reshape our personal environment and that our ability to do so is limited. So some of these problems actually require societal scale collaboration. Like maybe we just shouldn't manufacture so many processed foods that encourage compulsive eating. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, every chapter of the book is just blowing apart a different part of the human experience and who the factors and players are in our bodies and in the environment to try to help people not copy my journey of personal growth because, oh my gosh, it wouldn't work for you, but to help people with intention and with thoughtfulness and with awareness begin to cultivate their own process of growth and transformation. And the one point I think that's universal in growth and transformation is that we all must begin trying to learn to love and accept ourselves as we are. And that might be the most important part Mm -hmm. of the work. Right. Yeah, we both come from this evangelical background, too. And I mean, that seems that the love your neighbor as yourself thing, (laughs) we lost that along the way. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, love your neighbor, you worthless asshole. (laughs) That just doesn't work as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um. Could you talk a little bit, you, you talked a lot about the, uh, like how this r- relates to understanding ourselves um, and understanding how we adapt. And in particular, one thing that, that I think is, is not clear to a lot of folks is, is how in, like our environments, whether they're mental or digital or just physical, how they affect and prime us to act in, in different ways. Oh, my gosh. So many ways. Um, I think probably the easiest one, I'll just like pull one thread if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. And that's this notion of supernormal stimulus as pioneered by Nico Tinbergen, who is a zoologist. And uh, Nico came up with this amazing way of understanding behavior, uh, which is called the hierarchical behavioral model. Um, And it's basically that there's a set of controls in every organism that respond to stimulus and create actions. There's a great diagram in the book uh, that I got from Wikipedia and then re-illustrated myself, um, you know, with uh, making sure we followed all of the uh, usage rights. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically, like, controls why organisms behave the ways they do. 
and uh, it's too much to talk about on a podcast. We can't do visuals, but basically, just there's this theory. Just know there's this theory. The theory actually doesn't work. He he thought there was basically <laughs> something like hydraulics in organisms, mm-hmm. uh, but it led him to research that does work. And that brings us to an idea called supernormal stimulus. And it's basically the idea that body-brain systems evolved in a given environment and they're well adapted to navigate that environment and help an organism thrive. But humans, with our ability to manufacture and create things at will, can create factors that hijack those natural behavioral patterns. So an example in the book would be if you create a wooden baby bird and you give it a big mouth, bigger than a normal baby bird and redder in a baby bird than a real baby bird, in some way it will so transfix a mother bird's brain body systems that she'll try to feed a fake baby bird so much that she won't feed her real baby birds, which is obviously maladaptive. That never happens in nature, but it happens when we add a super normal or a greater than normal stimulus to an environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example in the book is you can make like very, a very pretty female turkey head and put it on a stick and male turkeys will try so hard to mate with the stick that they ignore actual live female turkeys hello tender right like <laughs> okay now we get it um, and when you look at our environment the world that humans have created we've effectively surrounded ourselves with supernormal stimulus everywhere we look. Smartphones are supernormal stimulus. Mm-hmm. Netflix is supernormal stimulus. Instagram is supernormal stimulus. Pizza is supernormal stimulus. Makeup and fashion is supernormal stimulus. And so we're basically hijacking and titillating and overstimulating our brain body systems on a continual basis through media, through advertising, through consumer products through almost every facet of human society, and then we wonder why we are anxious and overwhelmed and tired and struggle to control ourselves. And it's just a matter that we've manufactured a world of fake turkey heads. I didn't even say it that well in the book, sadly. That came to me. <laughs> That's great, though. That's a wonderful <laughs> a wonderful image, and sounds like it could be a decent band name, the Fake Turkey Hats. <laughs> fake Turkey Hats. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> but, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right, and these are things that, like, advertisers and and other industries, entire industries are devoted to exploiting these natural tendencies in us, right? Like uh, from things from the ways in which there are dark, what are called dark patterns and and apps um, that feed engagement to the design of casinos to all sorts of things. Um, These sorts of things exist in our environment, even if we're not aware of them, even if we don't think of them, someone may be thinking of them, let alone all the different things that might just individually trigger a compulsion or something else that's right in this book what i like about it is you introduce all these really helpful different concepts and frameworks in which to understand how we um how we understand both ourselves and engage in the world talking about supernormal stimulus is actually a good 
segue to the concept that you bring up of um, a core state uh, that that we do have like a, a, a sort of physical state in which is, for lack of a better term, more normal um, in like a physiological type of sense. Can you talk about that concept and why this having a core state is important and also the role of being able to manage feelings? Uh, you talk about how feelings should follow a sort of wave and that we develop certain ways to inhibit the, inhibit them that can be either healthy or unhealthy. I'm marrying a couple of things that may not have been tied in your book, but I, thematically I think they go together. So in regards to that core state, what does that mean for us and, and how, how is that something that we can uh, be aware of in ourselves? Core state comes from a psychological theory or a model called Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, or AEDP. It's originally developed by someone named Diana Fosha, um, who's a, a psychologist, and then that model was uh, refined and continued to grow, involving people like uh, Ron Frederick or uh, Hillary Jacob Handel, all these different psychologists kind of collaborated to do this really cutting-edge psychology. And it basically um, helps us understand why we all feel so shitty and what we can do about it. <laughs> um, Is that all? <laughs> and it, it's an amazing model. It's trauma-informed and emotionally focused. For those of you who have kind of a, a therapeutic mindset, you'll know what those terms mean. Um, and uh, it is wonderful. I heard about it, of course, from the Dr. Hillary McBride. Uh, my favorite of all the world's psychologists and psychotherapists. And um, core state is something I think most of us hardly ever experience. It is this state we're born in, where we feel calm and curious and open and clear. And it's so far from where we live all the time. And the way we get there the way we get where we're not there, I guess, more accurately, is core state is installed in the f by the factory in our brain, so to speak. We're, we're born with the ability to live in core state. That's the, the natural state of an organism that's not in a place of environmental stressors. Hmm. But when there's something in the environment that's a stressor, our bodies know how to respond, and that's a core affect. You might also call these feelings. These are the basic emotions. Joy is one of them, but you have sadness or anger or surprise, sexual arousal, basically disgust, the, the feelings you see in in and out plus a couple that they didn't <laughs> want to include, like surprise, uh, I guess maybe that was conflated with fear, and, uh, and they didn't include sexual arousal because it's a kid's movie, but sexual <laughs> arousal is a perfectly normal, natural, good feeling. Uh, and so we have these feelings, and we start having these feelings, and as small children we get some either reinforcement or not when we express a feeling. So when a child is angry, a caregiver might respond by getting angry in return or setting them down and walking away or even just making an unpleasant facial expression. And quickly, because children are rapid learners, they figure out this feeling isn't allowed. So mm -hmm. if I am angry and I don't receive affection or I receive some kind of penalty for my anger, 
I will learn anger is not okay, and then I'll have a new feeling that isn't one of the core affects. It's an inhibiting affect. It's a feeling designed to keep me from feeling a feeling I'm not allowed to feel. And the, the inhibiting affects, examples of those would be anxiety, worry, guilt, and shame, right? So I, I never used to feel anxiety when I was young because I had plenty of guilt and shame instead. <laughs> <laughs> but once I learned to cope my guilt and shame, that's when I got anxiety because I still didn't know how to feel sad or angry. Are you mm. with me? Yes. <laughs> so uh, that kind of takes us up that way. And so you can see what's meant to happen is we're meant to have a feeling, and the feelings tell us something, and I go into great detail about what our feelings tell us in the book. Um, and then they, they come in a wave that seems very intense at, fat, at first, and then kind of crests and then subsides, and then we go back to core state. But that never happens because today the feeling feels so strong and so fast, and we've been so conditioned against this, we jump straight to an inhibiting affect, like mm-hmm. anxiety. Here's the problem. Anxiety is really unpleasant. No one likes to feel anxious. No one likes to feel worried. No one likes to feel guilty. And no one likes to feel ashamed. So our brains try to find a way out. And knowing we can't go back to the feeling that caused it in the first place, because we've been socialized against that, we head over to a defensive affect. Things like humor. Things like rationalization. Things like acting out. Things like addictions and compulsions. Anything that lets us get away from feeling worried, anxious, guilty, or ashamed then becomes a defensive affect. And none of these things are wrong, by the way. There's a risk in sharing this model because people will start to say, oh my gosh, I spend all my time in defensive and inhibitory affect. I'm so bad. And then they feel deeper shame. Gosh, no, stop that right now if you're listening and relating You don't need to feel ashamed about any of this stuff. I'm so grateful for my inhibitory and defensive affects, and I hope you're grateful for yours because mine kept me alive. Mm -hmm. Mine kept me in community. Mine kept me in the ability to interact with others. So it's not a matter that these things are bad. It's a matter that when we're aware of this model, we can work in conjunction with a professional therapist or if those resources aren't available to us for financial reasons, then we can begin to do the work ourselves of learning to let ourselves experience our feelings and to experience them fully. So here in COVID-19, I'm learning that when I feel anxious, that my body's trying to tell me something. But anxiety doesn't tell me anything specific. It's like a check engine light. That's how Hillary describes it. Mm. Check engine lights just mean you need to dig deeper, just like anxiety does. So I know that if I'm in, in the cupboard and I'm eating my 15th cookie for the day, I'm having a compulsive eating pattern that I'm trying to avoid anxiety with. So I just stop that. And when I stop that, I feel anxious. And so when I feel anxious, I go sit alone in my office and I sit in my chair and I say, body, what am I feeling? Or I might even say the words, anxiety, who sent you? And then I sit and wait and I, I scan my body to see what feelings I feel. What do I feel in my belly and my back and my chest in my shoulders and my neck and my cheeks and my forehead on my scalp, on my hands, warm, cold, tight, loose, a knot. What is it? What feelings are there? Physical sensations. And as I pay attention to those, 
eventually I learn that feelings are coming. And if I'm patient and allow my feelings to develop, I might learn that the reason I'm anxious is because I'm actually very sad, because I'm grieving, because I know so many people are going to die. Or I might feel anxious because I'm a man and I'm angry and I'm afraid of men who are angry. I've, in my life, experienced so much explosive and violent anger from other men that I'm afraid to be angry myself because I don't want to be like those monsters who scared me. And yet, when I refuse to allow myself to be angry, there's nothing wrong with nonviolent anger. It's just information. When I let myself be angry, I realize I might be angry because all these deaths are unnecessary. That so many people are going to die simply because our president was afraid to do his emotional labor. Mm -hmm. And that makes me angry because it tells me a value. It tells me I care about people. I care about lives. And if I let myself sit in my chair and just be sad or just be angry, gosh, it might take 10 or 15 minutes. On the other side of that process, what do I feel? Calm and collected and open and clear and relieved. And so that's kind of the model I talk about in the book. Uh, and, I, and again, I'm specific about what all our basic feelings tell us. I tell lots of defensive affects. I go into more detail about inhibiting affects. By the way, Hillary and I are launching another show to talk about this in detail. It's called How We Feel. It'll air in the next few weeks, I'm hoping. Mm. Wow, that's um, awesome. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, this is a major, major revelation and I think has the potential uh, to not only improve people's quality of lives, quality of life, but also to like make society more healthy. If more people have more access to their feelings, they become more resilient in the kind of conversations we need to have about the inequality in society becomes more easy because people can manage their own emotional responses in those situations. Right. Yeah. Because so many conversations are, are difficult or impossible to have because people don't know how to manage their emotions. Yes. Like when, I, when someone hears white feelings. Yeah. <laughs> white feelings are actually real psychology. But right. what is unfair is that marginalized people become responsible for managing someone else's psychological response when a sociological system is causing them continuous harm. Right. And that's why one of the many reasons I'm I'm so involved in advocacy evolving mental health and emotional resiliency is because I actually think it becomes a justice issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and I really appreciate everything that you you shared about how individuals can can understand the value of the ways in which they inhibit and how they can be modes of legitimate true survival. Mm-hmm. You know, and then that's and. And at the same time, being able to be that next step being saying, okay, this, this has served me well. Now I need to I, basically it change my behavior now because this is no longer and developing that awareness. I mean, just speaking um, in, in vagaries, but like last year involved a lot of grief for me. And there were things that I did in order to address that, that as time went on, I needed to, to change like there were there were things that served that making me be able to survive the waves of feeling that as time went on the costs of of those effects 
become too much to bear and then that must be addressed and that's just part of part of the cycle but i i do appreciate that you frame this as that both of those are valid and both of those are part of the process you share a lot of really personal stories in the book and there's one part of the story where you where you talk about uh being involved in a retreat and including Hillary who you've mentioned a couple of times and and something happens that sort of uh triggers a significant event for you and that l- led you on a path towards a, a new type of therapy um and what I'm actually curious about how do our relationships with others benefit us so much of what we've talked about so far has been about being aware of yourself being aware of your knowing yourself well um but all of that that work that you describe and a lot of it was aided by your relationship with hillary and her helping you find other things and i'm just curious how do our relationships with others benefit us and how can we also be cognizant of and gentle with one another when we have the information to be aware of someone's someone else's say trauma or histories well i mean we're social primates so relationships are are necessary for our our fundamental emotional well-being and our physical survival the quality and health of our relationships will play a huge factor in the quality and health of our life mm-hmm um, and one of the main lenses I use to examine social relationships in this particular book is, um, number one, being trauma-informed and trauma-aware and being aware that we have triggers and everyone else has triggers too, and our triggers trigger each other's triggers. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get triggered and I respond, I might trigger someone else. And all the trauma is real and all the trauma is legitimate, and we start to behave in really unhealthy ways. I th- frankly feel like uh, in post-evangelical spaces, um, people being triggered and re-traumatizing each other is the major cycle of those communities and is really maladaptive and unhealthy. Um, and uh, so as much as like I love those communities, I've always kept them kind of at arm's length because there's been, even before I had the language I have now, I've been aware of that cycle and the harm that it caused and the harm that I've brought to others Frankly, uh, you know, I never say anything unless I'm pointing back at myself first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and so one is being tra- aware that trauma exists in almost every person and get, comes into play in every relationship. And then the other thing I talk about is attachment style and the ways that our caregivers treated us in the first couple of years of life, especially in the first six or eight months of our lives, which we have no memory of, have become like kind of the dominant factor in how we relate to people when we care about them not only in romantic relationships but also in intimate friendships and when people aren't aware of those patterns we can move through life in a way where we are constantly hurt and are constantly hurting other people and it makes community which is already difficult even more challenging than it needs to be so my goal with including those lenses in the book, number one, being trauma-informed, and number two, um, attachment theory, is to kind of give people a roadmap and an understanding of the way they show up in relationships 
and tips and strategies for how they can alter that in a way that lets them to feel less hurt by others and to hurt others less. You and I both are products of white evangelical culture, and I think that one of the things that we've both experienced is that there's a very particular, very narrow sense of masculinity and how painful it can be when someone doesn't fit that mold. With that in mind, how are men that are that were conditioned in those sorts of environments to understand themselves and others, and what must they unlearn in order to better experience growth and healing? And then the related question, how can white men recognize the importance of the work they must do for themselves while also being cognizant of the unlearned privileges that we have? That in and of itself, I think, is a really hard thing for a lot of people adapt to adapt to, especially as they may move from, say, a conservative place, a white conservative place that, that privileged them extensively to a liberal one that they may experience more pushback. They may experience people questioning their either their their motives or or any, and that's not that's not a pleasant feeling, um, but it's a legitimate one in my opinion. So to me, those two things are sort of interlocked, and they're you talk about in the book how white men are, have a similar suicide rate to queer teens, uh, and mm-hmm. and that that is. Emblem, that's symptomatic of something else, right? It, mm-hmm. it signifies that there's something not right. Um, so I know that that was a long preface, but I'm, I'm curious how, how, you're, how you've approached that and how you see that playing out societally and just within all of the work that you've done with other people throughout the years. I think the first thing I would say is all feelings are legitimate. Mm-hmm. There's, Every every feeling, um, every feeling, every person's feeling, every time is legitimate. There's there's no exceptions to that. Not every response to every feeling is legitimate. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think our president has significant attachment trauma, really, really significant attachment trauma. I think um, that some gaps in basic caregiving when our president was less than a year old shape almost every action our president takes. And the feelings our president feels are legitimate. The responses to those feelings cause others great harm. And so I can be simultaneously sympathetic, even empathetic to the feelings our president has and find the actions and responses to those feelings unacceptable and name them as such. Which can cause the president to feel what? Uh, I am sure if Donald Trump were to hear me talk about his behaviors in public policy and governance, he would feel very uncared for by me 
and his feelings of feeling uncared for uh, are real, and I don't minimize them. Uh, but I will name it because I think an extra level of responsibility comes when you decide to lead a nation. <laughs> <laughs> you invite people into feedback in your life to a degree that would not be normal or appropriate in interpersonal relationships in most situations. Mm-hmm. I start there to say these things are inextricable, the growth that men need to make and the awareness of their privilege. The, they're, they're the same, two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the fact is men are conditioned in something that has been dubbed by researchers as the man box. And the man box is a set of restrictions on what men can think, do, and feel. And if you participate in the man box, the whole system of patriarchy is participating in the man box offers you privilege. Not exclusive to white men, by the way. If black men or Hispanic men or trans men conform Mm -hmm. to the man box, there are rewards. If women in limited capacities enter into the man box, say in corporate spaces or management spaces, Mm -hmm. then it will unlock privilege for them. And the man box is something that causes you to what? Ignore your own feelings and dehumanize others. It is something that makes one feel powerful and successful at the same time that it makes one lonely and disconnected. It is a a temporary gratification. What you'll see is people who play the man box game well and come from some kind of means are able to gain access to economic means that allow them to perform well in the man box. They will become relatively wealthy. They will be well-respected by their peers in their working environment, and they will get about 45 and have a midlife crisis, maybe earlier, maybe 38, maybe as late as 55, because they'll say, is this all there is to life? I have money, I have a boat, I have a sports car, I have no friends. I have acquaintances at work who we compete for quarterly sales rewards, right? It is not a gratifying way to live. Mm -hmm. What we see happen because of the man box is a beginning of emotional growth in a person. A man might become aware that women are mistreated in his workplace or that people of color are passed over in advancement opportunities or even in hiring in general. Something in the environment, a man will become aware of and he'll say, this is not right, and it will affect his politics. It will affect his social stances. And then he'll enter into a more progressive space. But because he has not fully become aware of or confronted toxic masculinity, and because he continues to behave in ways where he only has minor variations from the overall man box, he is what? Rebuked. He's rebuffed. He's corrected. And this feels like some kind of violation because when one participates in the man box in patriarchy, one is never rebuffed. Right. (laughs) In the man box, there are a set of ways to behave that are good and right and normal. And if you do those, you're always rewarded and validated and gratified. Mm Mm-hmm. This is this critical stage when one has begun to step out of the man box but has not stepped out completely. When when things go poorly, you see men regress. They become 
what, free thought people. They become Jordan Peterson fans. They find some other system that allows them to feel like they can critique the more brutal components of the man box and the way it impacts others while still holding on to this sense of objectivism or this sense of um, of being beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is when you'll see people criticizing the progressive left or leftists or whatever. I just don't care about political labels very much. I got to be honest, Blake. This is not a thing <laughs> I'm passionate about. No, um, yeah. I mean, but I, what I do care about is acknowledging the fullness of people's humanity and accepting the feelings they have and believing the stories that people tell about their lives. And when our worldviews get in the way of us, being able to not only acknowledge our own feelings and our own life experiences, but those of others, this is the root of so many problems in our social order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To close things out, I want to ask a couple and an, a couple more uh, just open questions and just just capture your thoughts. What is there to learn or to have in mind from this present moment of pandemic that we're all living in as well. Embodiment gives us access to wisdom. Mm. Embodiment is a way to um, put flesh on the bones of a moral philosophy. Embodiment is the necessary rebalancing of post-enlightenment human thought. Um, Disembodied thought is where we get nuclear weapons. Disembodied thought is how we build gas chambers to make genocide more efficient. (laughs) Embodiment is not easy work for those of us who are conditioned to be disembodied. It is especially difficult if you were conditioned to be disembodied and have a trauma background. (laughs) Yeah. There's some scary stuff in your body. Your body remembers the pain that you've been through. But when we gain access to embodiment, I've always had friends of color. And... When we would talk about racial justice issues before I began to explore embodiment, my response to discussions of race was sort of a codependent saviorism. I found my role to be the best listening ear in the history of listening ears, which isn't bad. It's not that, you know, friends of color in my life would complain that when I was in that state that I was a bad friend. Quite the contrary. They probably experienced me as a wonderful friend. And it was so emotionally exhausting to always be the best listener I could possibly be, mm-hmm. not just with friends of color, but in life, that I tended to be pretty socially withdrawn. Friendship was exhausting for me. When I'm embodied, however, I am able to be less fearful, to be more genuine and sincere in friendship, and to lament at times of lament, to name things when they need to be named, to listen when it's just time to listen. I become a more active and full participant in relationship when I'm embodied. 
And at this time that we are facing such a scary thing globally, a pandemic, well, this is the moment when embodiment is most essential Mm -hmm. because a grounded embodiment allows us to grieve as we need to grieve, to lament as we need to lament, to celebrate as we need to celebrate, to crave connections with others at those moments that we need it. It allows us to, through sensation and through lived experience, react in ways moment by moment that are simply more adaptive than when we sit back in some cerebral tower examining the world from afar. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm no expert in embodiment. I think I admit freely and openly in the book that my journey in embodiment is just beginning. And I'm not sure that I would be able to make it through these days and weeks that we're in right now if it weren't for the guidance and encouragement I've had to live in a more embodied way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you said, that's what we need right now. We need to feel that sort of encouragement from people in our lives or from other sources to be present with ourselves and and with one another in whatever capacity we can as we navigate these un you know no one in almost living memory has any recollection of this of what we're going through as a society right now and i'm thankful for for your words and for this this book is coming out when it when it is is <laughs> i i know that at, as far as promoting it it must this is again uncharted territory but at the same time it's a it's a good book for this for this time because you're giving those resources to people. Yeah, we're doing our best, you know. Yeah. Um, I've launched a 21 city tour mm-hmm. uh, to try yeah. to give people something to look forward to and something to do. Right. Um, so yeah. So talk about that. Talk about um, the what you're doing for the book tour because it's it's quite innovative. I saw it pop up on Twitter earlier. Um, talk about that and where people can find you and find your book and, and everything else uh, throughout the spring here. Well, you can find the book anywhere books are sold. Um, that includes online spaces. Uh, if you want to connect with me, just go to mikemcharg.com. Now, if you're like, how do you spell McCarg? M-C-H-Argue, like I'm going to argue with you about <laughs> embodiment. Um, and that'll get you right there. And that you can find information about the book there and about the tour there, about new shows I'm launching. I'm doing a lot of programs right now, several weekly video programs. Hillary and I are launching a new show called How We Feel. And, of course, this book comes out April the 28th. And then I'll be on tour uh, through April, May, and June, where I go city by city into your living room. And uh, several cool things is that. Number one, you do get a copy of the book. Number two is depending on which reseller you're working with, you'll either get a book plate to put inside your book that's hand-inscribed from me to you or a postcard that I mail you directly. Um, And then we get together online. We do an event that's participatory. I am not a lecturer. I'm not a monologuer. I'll bring people on camera. We'll talk. We'll answer your questions uh, in the framing of the book. And then every event also has a Facebook group where people geographically near each other can connect at this time when we are social and physical distancing. Mm -hmm. So we've tried to bring the best of what in-person events bring while still allowing people to participate in physical distancing and save lives, which is why we launched the You're a Miracle in-home tour. 
And uh, tickets go on that for all stops on April the 13th. Awesome. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about your latest book and everything that's happened over these last few years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so thankful that you took the time today and that I just want you to know I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thank you.